God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, the program that brings you together with Christian ministry leaders, authors, pastors, and people who are ambassadors for Christ in their vocation. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and I thank you for joining today in our program as we seek to encourage and equip followers of Jesus Christ to show His heart and mind in all that we do. Today we feature a special guest, Frank McCammett, a longtime leader in the Electric Market of Texas, an operation which is getting a lot of attention these days, and that's probably an understatement. If your power didn't go out at some point during the snow apocalypse, or your water did not need boiling at some time during this event, well, congratulations. But even if you personally didn't have issues, we'd all like to understand more fully how the market for electricity in Texas works. So what is an electric grid? Why is it so complex? Why is it hard to start? Why is it hard to maintain? What happened during the extreme weather that caused so much of the electric generation capacity and natural gas for heating not to be available? What can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? What is a Christian response to the problems we've experienced? So please stay with us. This is a topic which impacts us all. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear podcasts of our past programs and also audio and video from our past conferences on vocation, science, art, the spiritual formation of C.S. Lewis, and more. Our radio programs are also available as podcasts at Hill Country Institute Live on your podcast app. The program is supported by donations, and you can donate to support this program at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993 and hillcountryinstitute.org. And for donations, over $100, we have a copy of Caring for Creation, the Evangelical's Guide to a Healthy Environment. And please contact us if you'd like to sponsor the program. Our special guest today, Frank McCammett, is a graduate of the engineering and MBA programs at UT Austin. He was a key executive in the leadership team at LCRA, where he worked on energy and water issues for 31 years. He is now a consultant to participants in the electric market, including investors, power generation sources, distribution companies, and others. Frank was chairman of the Board of Elders at Hope Chapel in Austin, and he served on the boards of nonprofits, including the Texas Council on Autism and Pervasive Development Disorders, and the Intellectual Development Disability, that's IDD, System Redesign Advisory Committee. That's a long name, so I know it was doing important work. Frank's also an advisor to the Hill Country Institute on Energy Policy and Creation Care. So now, let's welcome our special guest, Frank McCammett. Frank, thank you for being with us today. It's a, it's a great honor and a delight to welcome you. Larry, thank you, and, and I certainly appreciate this invitation. I know you've been trying to, to get me on your podcast for a while, and so I guess it took uh, a bunch of power outages to make that happen. <laughs> well, let's find an easier way to get you on the show next time. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> There's a, a lot of turmoil to get you here, but, you know, I can't I can't think of anyone uh, who can better help explain it and a better time for you to be here. So, so thank you. So, let me let me go back in time though, back before really these issues started, and think about you know uh, uh, a young Frank and and a, a Frank in his career. So, how has your faith in Christ impacted your business life? You know, from choosing a career path to how you conduct yourself in the workplace. Well, you know, interesting choosing a career path. You know, I th- I think I think faith has always played a role in in just how I approach my life. You know, I I I have a strong belief in the sovereignty of God, and so and the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, I was I grew up a Lutheran, so I had an early faith, but I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was in high school uh, with some dear friends that kind of got us a bunch of us together one night and said, hey, something happened to us and described it to us. And we we were all baptized that night in the Holy Spirit. And so, but, you know, I I grew up, I loved the outdoors. I still love the outdoors. And, you know, me and my buddies would go out, you know, camping, riding our motorcycles, hunting. And so I always wanted to do something where I could work outside. 
And when I was getting ready to go to college, my initial choice was I thought, well, I'm going to go to uh, Stephen F. Austin College because I want to go into forestry. Sure. And, you know, I'd be up outdoor all the time. And I thought that really great. And my mother, when she heard that, she said, she said, oh, that would be such a waste of your of your mind. You know, you're so good at math and science. And so I decided I'd compromise with her and I went to UT to, to do engineering where I could work on things outside as an engineer, building things and stuff like that. And so um, so from there, I, I ended up having a part time job with um, the electric utility department here in Austin. And when I was getting ready to graduate, I was wanting to go actually into wastewater uh, utility. But the, the leaders of the utility department had another plan in mind for me. They offered me a job as an engineer uh, right out of the box. And so I thought that was pretty great. And I got to work outside building a power plant um, out near uh, LaGrange, Texas. And from there, I just went into working for uh, the utility that I worked for for about 30 years. Sure. Yeah. So you... You were God's ambassador in, in that setting. And uh, I think that's, that's important for all of us to think about, that if you're in a utility, if you're in a law firm, whatever it may be, uh, you're, you're God's representative there. So, uh, so you, got a, you got an engineering degree, you earned your MBA, and then you, you were at LCA or RA for, a, for an extensive time. Uh, and that... that uh, time at LCRA, you were, you were largely focused on electric generation and marketing issues there, weren't you? Um, <clears throat> yes. You know, so I started off, you know, as I said, kind of working on um, power plant construction. Um, I went into managing um, the fuel sources for, for power plants, um, including developing a local fuel source, which ended up being very controversial. So I kind of learned something about, you know, understanding and paying attention about how the public feels about certain things, mm -hmm. um, because that project was very controversial. And that, that was kind of a good lesson for a, for a young engineer. Um, from there, I went into, um, you know, the, the responsibilities for managing these fuel sources grew over time because they initially had been kind of split between different areas within the company. And then that led up to the time when I decided to go back and get my MBA, which is something that um, LCRA helped me to do. And so I did that. And that was very, I always tell people that was, I did, I recalibrated my engineering mind to business. And so, um, mm -hmm. so that was really um, kind of a, 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 a key experience for me was going through that uh, MBA experience. And so um, from there, I came back and um, well, when, when I finished it, the, the company kind of made some uh, shifts and responsibility among um, a few executives. And I went over into the financial planning and corporate planning role and, and did, did a lot of work as we went into deregulation in Texas. And so, um, um, you know, just before that, we'd worked on developing a, a brand new power plant just before deregulation came into play. And so I built some relationships in the, in the industry on the development side. And so all those kind of came together that, you know, um, uh, where I really got to work on a lot of different things across uh, corporate issues, kind of looking at how to restructure things within the company uh, for deregulation, working on development projects, working on policy issues around deregulation, not only in the state, but I did quite a bit. About 12 years I worked within a group that was a, uh, a national organization of 25, 25 of the largest publicly owned utilities and we worked on federal issues around deregulation and things like that. And I played a role in leading a task force within that group. And so I got a lot of national exposure around that also. And so all that led to 
uh, a lot of good relationships, a lot of good experience that when I decided it was time to go ahead and take my early retirement ticket uh, to get into consulting. Sure. And so your your clients in consulting touch on all of those things you did. So the the it, it just seems that God prepared you one step at a time for being a uh, broad-based, you know, well-experienced, what would the term be, ele- electric executive? I mean, you have an electric personality, but uh, I'm just trying to think, uh, you know, how, how would you, what's a term for, for the type of consulting that you do? Uh, well, I like to, I like to call myself as an independent consultant. And so, you know, working on uh, power supply issues, um, policy issues, um, smart grid. I've had some clients that have been doing smart grid work, um, which is kind of a key thing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, all those different things. You know, when, when we talked about how your faith plays into your, your vocation, you know, one of the things I always believe, even now, but when I was working for um, uh, an employer, was you know to to do always do, to do all things in excellence, and you know to always try and make whoever was I was working for to make them look good, and so um, so that was kind of my goal in the work that I did, um, you know. And when I when I made the decision to retire and to to move into consulting, that that was kind of a a. a unsettling time for me. It made me nervous. You know, when you've worked for somebody for 30 years, you kind of get a sense of security about, you know, well, I know where I'm supposed to go. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know where my paycheck comes from. And so all that changing was kind of a, a little bit of a scary time. But, but you know, God was really in it. And, and what I did is when I was going to make that decision, I went around to five people that I really trusted that I thought would give me, you know, a straight answer on what I was trying to find out. And I just went to them and said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this retiring, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think what should I do next? And I was just seeking your advice. And so all of them told me that, you know, that they thought I'd be really good as a consultant. And so that sounded fine. Uh, but it was uh, the last one I talked to that said, I think you'd be really good as a consultant. And if you decide to do that, I will give you a contract to do consulting work for us. Well, that kind of sealed the deal. <laughs> and so uh, so God was faithful in all that, you know, seeking you know, seeking oh, a God. multitude of advisors and just kind of, you know, letting be, being patient about it and trusting in the Holy Spirit and God to be faithful in all that. Sure. Well, there's nothing nothing like stepping out and knowing you you do have a paycheck coming in, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's yes, that's assuring. That's true. It really is. Well, Frank, with with all that background and and experience that you have, uh, people are very interested. You know, how does the electric market work? What happened with ERCOT? You know, what there's there's all these pieces, and it says we've been talking bef- bef- before this conversation. Uh, I've, I've found as somebody that's not an, an electric professional uh, or that acquainted with all of the issues, that it's very complex. And I've, I've been quite amazed at all the pieces that go into uh, the Texas electricity market, how grids work, the, the interconnectivity or lack of interconnectivity with the other grids. So could, could maybe you just give us an overview. How, how does the Texas electricity market work and What's the big picture? Yeah. You know, you know, what's interesting about that question is, is I remembered as we were talking that one of the things I did back at LCRA is, is myself and another gentleman developed a course that we called Electricity 101. Mm-hmm. And, and employees would sign up and, and it was basically a way just to kind of get them to understand, well, how does the electric grid work? And we actually started with uh, atoms and electrons and went from there to build, you know, how do you build machines and how does it work on the, on the grid and how does the grid work and all that. So, so, so that was actually something I did for many years at LCRA, but, but the, the, I guess the fundamental thing to remember about the electric grid is that it's very dynamic. You know, it's not like 
let's say natural gas or propane. You know, if I want to have natural gas in my home or propane at my home, there's a way to store it and deliver it when I need it. Electricity, you can't store it. It, it has to be available instantaneously when it's needed. Now there are, there are obviously battery technologies coming into play about you know, some ways to store a limited amount of electricity, um, but that's mainly just kind of get across a few hours of, of a need, whether you're trying to cover a peak need or, or some other reason. And so battery technology is coming along, but for the fundamentals of operating and keeping an electric grid reliable, um, it, it has to be instantaneous. So essentially every time I go into a room and I turn a light switch on, I'm changing the dynamics of that balance between the generating plant and what I need um, in terms of my load, whether it's air conditioning, lighting, industrial load, whatever. And so the operators of the grid are always working on that dynamic of how the load changes to make sure that the power plants are responding correctly. Now, most of that today is, is automated through computer systems and they can send signals. Um, and so, so, for instance, for the ERCOT system, you know, those signals are sent out every few seconds and the power plants respond to it to kind of keep it, keep it in line. And the, and the key metric or the key measure that they keep track of is frequency. And the frequency of the, of the US electric system is, is, six, is 60 cycles, 60 Hertz. And so they wanna maintain that frequency as close to 60 Hertz as they can. And they have certain bounds that they can't go above or below, below that. And so that's how they balance. If you think, if you think about a, a, a load, so if I turn on something, let's say I turn on my washing machine in my house. And so I've created a load. Well, that, that increased load will tend to drag down the power plants that are running at that time. Um, and the 60 Hertz is all around rotating machinery. So those power plants spin, the majority of them spin at 3,600 RPM. And so, um, and so, um, as you add load, they tend to drag down. And so the operators have to push them back up. So put more fuel in to push them back up to kind of get that balance back with the 60 Hertz. So that's kind of the dynamics that's going on um, at a high level. Now on the system, you have power plants, you have fuel providers, the power plants are inter interconnected to the grid uh, at a high voltage. Uh, that voltage is then distributed at even, uh, that power is distributed at even higher voltage because it's more efficient uh, that way. And then as it gets close to where it needs to be used, the voltage steps down to at different substations to the distribution utilities that you see outside your house, the wires outside your house or business to kind of deliver to your home. So that's kind of how the overall system works. So the the distribution utilities are the are the tail end, if, if you will, the, the one that connects to our house, and and that's uh, either a city, or a co-op, or a, or a company that's uh, selling the energy. That's the that's the end deliverer, the, the the connection with your house. Is that right? Yeah. So in Texas, all of the distribution utilities are they're called wires companies, and they. They don't have anything to do with the sale of the power. They only deliver it. And actually under our system, they do the billing for it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so all the billing runs through the distribution companies, but uh, they only provide the wires and maintain the wires to the house. The electric power supply is in a completely different um, area and the, the, the two don't meet. One's regulated, one's unregulated. Okay, so in, in the production of energy, we have uh, generators, and there, there's a variety of ways that Texas has energy generated. I mean, we think of natural gas and windmills, well, or wind turbine uh, energy uh, as, as big producers and, and a declining amount of coal. 
But uh, so that's that's where it starts. But then the the grid is all this the wires that interconnect it. So there there are companies that actually have the transmission lines. Or, or is this correct there, that there's the generator and then there's a transmission line that's owned by a company, and the grid is the, the grid operator is controlling all that, and it ends up with the distribution company. Am I am I kind of explaining that in a reasonable way, or is that? Yeah, in 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 a way, yes. So 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 let's think about it. So you had the generators that you outlined, and so they they generate the power, and so they they are the unregulated piece of the electric power market. So um, so they don't have any they don't have any oversight. Nobody has to tell them you know what they need to do to to um, to charge for their power. Uh, the market has got certain limitations on what they can and can't do, but it's all based around a free market, unregulated market. So the generators then put their power onto the grid, and the grid is made up, as you said, you have high-voltage transmission companies. Uh, they're called transmission service providers, or TSPs. And then um, as it goes down... And that's really to take it long distances. And then as it gets close to where the load is, then it goes down to um, the distribution companies. And they're called distribution service providers or DSPs. And so, and and then we even have some hybrids because some of them have both transmission and distribution. Mm -hmm. um, so they would be called a TDSP, transmission and distribution service provider. So it could be somebody like an Encore or a Centerpoint um, where they have a lot of transmission as well as a lot of distribution that they service. Okay. And so those transmission service providers and distribution service providers are regulated. And so the transmission service providers uh, and the ones that are transmission and distribution service providers for the most part are regulated by the PUC uh, some of the smaller ones that are like um, co-ops or munis, they would be regulated by a city council or a cooperative board. Um, and so, but they have to get everything that they want to do to be approved. And all of their costs and the money they make has to be approved in a rate case that goes before the PUC or the city council or the co-op board. Okay, so just... I'm just thinking maybe uh, to help understand, let's what what is Austin Energy, CPS Energy, LCRA, and Blue Bonnet? That's that's four in our area. Okay. And just how what, okay, what do they so, fit in this? Yeah. So so Austin Energy and CPS Energy for San Antonio would be the same thing essentially. They're they're municipal utilities. They are both big enough so they have some transmission. And of course, they have distribution. Um, they're also because they are part of the uh, electric market that is um, not in the competitive areas. So they they don't have um, their customers don't have choice of who that supplies them power. So they're they're still a what is called a vertically integrated utility. They also have power generation. And so Austin Energy, CPS Energy, um, both have generation, transmission lines, and distribution uh, wires. Now, the one thing they are required to do is that they have to keep their generation and dis I mean, their transmission and distribution operations completely separate from their generation operations because their generation is playing in a competitive market. And so they have to have the so-called Chinese wall mm -hmm. between their wires business and their generation business. And so Austin, um, Austin Energy and, and CPS both own uh, uh, interest, uh, I think 100% in CPS's case, and an interest with LCRA in, in uh, nuclear plants. And do they own directly other uh, generation capabilities? Yes, yeah, so the nuclear is... is CPS in Austin, LCRA is not into the into uh, South Texas, but um, 
But yeah, so for instance, Austin Energy and LCRA together own the Fayette Power Project, the coal plant mm -hmm. out near LaGrange. So that would be another another good example. Okay. Now, L LCRA is a little bit different animal because it it does not have any retail business. It's 100% wholesale. So, so CPS and Austin Energy are in the retail business. LCRA is 100% is wholesale. So they serve a group of wholesale customers that are municipalities and electric cooperatives that take their power from LCRA. LCRA, again, uh, has generation and transmission that are separate companies, separate affiliates within the LCRA structure. And again, their generation bids into the competitive market. And so, so that's the kind of animal they are. They would be like, you know, we also have in Texas what we call uh, G&T co-ops, generation and transmission co-ops. An example um, would be um, South Texas electric co-ops where they own um, several generation plants, they do transmission, but their customers are distribution cooperatives. And so, so in some ways, they, them and LCRA are similar in that sense. LCRA, of course, is different because they also have a water business. They are stewards of the lower Colorado River. So that makes them a little bit different from uh, uh, an electric cooperative GNT. Mm -hmm. And so, so you've kind of got a different mix of different types of companies. And then your last one on the list was Blue Bond Electric Co-op. And so they are a distribution co-op only. They own, they don't own any generation. Uh, they are a wholesale customer of LCRA. And so, so they, they essentially just purchase all of their electric power and distribute it to their members. Okay. Yeah. So that, I think that's, that's something maybe in, in our central Texas area that people would, would be familiar with one or more of those entities and help to help to break it down. Uh, so all, all, they all have a, they all have a role. They all have a place. And then you've got this entity that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it sounds kind of like a shot or something to, to do with COVID it's called ERCOT, you know, and, and, uh, for our radio audience, you can't see, but Frank has uh, copied the the inside of ERCOT and has the graphs and uh, equipment that you would see if you were an ERCOT operator managing the grid. So uh, it's 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 a lot of fun. I invite you to see it on on a uh, on Hill Country Institute's website at some point. But Frank, ERCOT comes up all the time. It's being talked about. So what what exactly does this ERCOT entity do and why are they there and why are they getting so much attention these days well let me on, on that let me give just a little bit of history so so back before ERCOT was in place back before competition was put in place in texas there there was a grid operator it was called the texas interconnect system and there was a south texas interconnect system and then there was a uh, a North Texas interconnect system. And, and I believe it was the South Texas system that they, they actually housed in the LCRA, the old LCRA system operation control center. And they essentially managed the grid. Now, back in those days, instead of having one big unified grid like we have today, it was made up of 10 or 11 separate mini grids. So like LCRA had their own grid to manage. So they took care of their own transmission. They, their generation supplied their customers. And, and then there were, you know, you had like Houston Power and Light, you had Texas Utilities, you had all these different companies that kind of managed their own grids. And, and so the, the Texas Interconnect system just made sure that everybody was taking care of their own little mini grid um, in, in a way that was keeping it reliable and healthy. But the other thing is that if, if you think about electricity, electrons go over wherever they, they need to go across the wires. And so there would be times when 
um, these different grids at the edges would either push power across one way or back the other way. And so they had to keep a book of what was happening there so they could keep tabs of who took what and who got what. And they and it was just kind of a, a friendly organization because they would pay, pay each other back in kind. There wasn't any money that changed hands. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, if, if you inadvertently push some power over onto my grid, I would keep track of that. We'd have a book. And then at some point in time, I'd have to pay you back and push some over on your side. And they oh. coordinated all that. I owe you some electrons. And so, yeah. And so actually, ERCOT, um, if, if my memory serves me correctly, ERCOT actually came into being before um, uh, the competitive market came into place because the Texas Interconnect system kind of unified into one entity to kind of take care of the whole state rather than have a north and south. And they would only have one control room. And, um, and so they were running, they were still running that out of the LCRA system operation control center. And then in 99, the legislator, legislature decided to deregulate uh, to a certain degree the market. And so all of these 10 or 11 different grids that different people were taking care of was unified into one big grid that is now ERCOT. And ERCOT stands for um, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And so, so they, were, they became the entity to make sure that one, this competitive market operated uh, properly, the way the legislature wanted it to and the PUC directed them to do it, and to maintain the reliability of the system. So in other words, make sure everything was operating properly, there were enough reserves on the system to take care of emergencies, and um, that there was planning for new transmission and generation was interconnecting properly. And so all that happened, um, you know, all that was put in place. The legislation was in 99, but it took a, took a couple of years to kind of get all that worked out through the market to put all that in place and switch over to this new market. So uh, what assets does ERCOT own? Well, ERCOT, the only assets and and the CEO put it well in one of these um, one of these meetings is that their only assets are the talented employees they have and the sophisticated uh, information technology systems they have to run the market. They don't own any generation. They don't own any transmission lines. They don't own any assets, physical assets within the market or the grid. Uh, other than the ones that I mentioned. Okay. And then there's, you, you mentioned the, before ERCOT, when one grid operator spilled something over into another one, they'd pay them back later. Uh, tell me about the accounting within ERCOT, because they, they've got transmission lines, they've got generators, there's, there's all this movement. How do, how do they manage that financially? Well, essentially, they're, they are just kind of um, uh, the bank in a way, uh, a bank that really doesn't charge any interest. But essentially, they so their costs, you know, for their employees, for their uh, information technology systems, managing all that, maintaining all that, um, whatever it costs them to run the organization is essentially charged to all of the users through an, an administration fee. And so, um, so that'll be on a bill that goes out to all of, the, all of the users on the system. And then essentially what they do is, you know, they keep tabs, you know, they've got sophisticated systems to keep tabs of, of meters. You know, they have meters on power plants. They have meters from, um, you know, all of the load they meter the generation, they meter the load, they have all that in their data systems. They send out bills. So, um, so in other words, they know what everybody on the system has used in terms of electric generation and what the market price was at the time that they used it. So remember, this is a competitive free market. So market prices will change as a, as 
as a function of supply versus demand. And so when you have a lot of supply and uh, let's say it's a nice spring day or fall day and the weather's mild, well then the demand is very low and you got a lot of power. And so prices can be very low. When it's a hot summer day, a hot August afternoon, everybody's running the air conditioning. Well, then the prices go up because the demand has gone up and the, the, the margin between supply and demand is tighter and the economic function is such that the price goes up. And so, so they keep track of all that. They, may, they keep track of who used what, when. They collect the money then from the people that used it and then they just turn around and pay that money out to the generators that made the power. Mm-hmm. And so, so they just kind of sleeve it in a way they get the money in from the people that used it. They turn around, they pay the money out to the people that generated the power. Well, so, so ERCOTS uh, has a certain degree of management. They have a limited degree of control though, because there's, there's some limits on like winterization has come up. Does ERCOT have uh, the authority to tell the generators to winterize? Uh, no, they don't. Okay, so, so. so that issue came up. That issue came up um, ten years ago, in 2011, when there was a, a, a smaller winter event. There, were, there was some limited um, rolling outages then, and there was some legislation and some some action at the PUC around weatherization. But it was really more about, it was directive in terms of saying these kind of things need to be done or paid attention to so that we don't have power plants tripping out or going offline when uh, we have freezing temperatures because certain things weren't done, like you know making sure uh, critical lines don't freeze um, and those kind of things, instruments don't freeze. Um, and so, um, so basically, ERCOT runs a process to, you know, make sure everybody pays attention to that every year. They they will go out and do some spot checks, but you know they they only they spot check a very small percentage of of all of the power plants that are in ERCOT, and so there's no way that they're checking them all. Uh, and so it's, so it's mainly just kind of a uh, let's pay attention to this and make sure people do the right thing. And uh, that always doesn't happen. And, um, and so that plus, um, you know, this particular event we just went through was, was quite a bit severe than anything we've had in the past. And, and I think in part, the generation owners have learned some things that, you know, their, their winterization techniques that might have worked in 2011 um, did not work in 2021 because it was so, the, the temperatures were so much lower, uh, the wind chill was so much higher, and the duration was so much longer that uh, I think they're going to have to rethink, you know, what, what do they need to do to winterize? Because obviously it can be done. It's done up in the north. You know, we have power plants that can run through severe winters up in the north of us. So it can be done. Um, the, the issue, I think, Larry, is going to be that it, it takes money to winterize a plant. And so, you know, in a free market, you tend not to direct the players in terms of, you know, what they need to do with their capital. You want to incentivize them to do certain things with their capital. And so uh, whether or not they're properly incentivized to winterize their plants, uh, one of the things that I heard that I thought was interesting that I wasn't aware of before was that actually uh, some of the winterization techniques to help protect a plant can make a plant run less efficiently in hot weather. And so, um, so, so if they winterize, you know, potentially they could take an efficiency hit when, when they're trying to run in the summer and make money in the summer. So it becomes a trade-off. So so I think it's going to be a key policy question for the state leaders as to, you know, what, what do you do about that conundrum? You know, do you mandate it? How's it funded? Um, how do you deal with the trade-off uh, that could be there in inefficiency? 
and and so it's 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 going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, because the when you know we, you've you've mentioned the uh, deregulation and becoming a competitive market in 1999, and in and it's my understanding, and you know you can flesh this out, but we are uh, at Texas is trying to attract capital to be invested in generators so that we'll have enough power from whatever the source to to meet our high points of, of need. Uh, this in this case most recently it was winter, but usually it's it's the summer months when when the grid is strained and, and so if we change the economic equation for people who are already here, then some of those some of those plants and I mean I'm just I'm thinking as a as a capitalist or a finance person you, you made a set of assumptions, and now if you have to winterize, you've got the cost of the winterization, you've got the decreased efficiency, and you may or may not be able to pick up that uh, additional cost in the market because it's a free market for the generators. So am I, is, is that a, am I explaining that correctly? And what, what do we do with that? How does, how does that work itself out? Um, well, you know, um, in, 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 in part, it becomes something, you know, that, that we tend to call a, a, a governmental mandate, you know, when, when, when you do different contracts in the, in the energy market, you know, uh, one of the clauses you always look at is, you know, what, what's, what's going to be a regulatory mandate or a government action that could change the economics of the deal you cut. And so, um, you know, this could be potentially one of them. You know, it could be if it's mandated. Um, you know, the 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 governor alluded to that. You know, he's going to look for a way to fund it. Um, you know, we'll see what how that plays out. Um, but you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of questions around that. I, I think in part, Larry. You know, I I, I think it's going to take a little while to make sure all of the salient facts come out about. You know what happened. Um, you know what was driven by the free market that we have, the competitive market, and then what are what are the real, true policy questions then that need to be addressed to to make sure something different happens if we have another polar vortex, so to speak, comes comes down here. Mm -hmm. And so, so you know, I'm hopeful that. First of all, you know, everybody gets all of the facts out on the table and, and looks at them properly and then see what are the what are the policy questions that need to be addressed and then what are the pros and cons of doing different things. And then, then and then at that point they can make an informed decision about what do they want to do that they think would best serve um, the citizens of Texas. Certainly. Well, uh Frank, the, uh, the the issues that came about, what what do you understand actually happened? Because, you know, you might tell the story about uh, Monday morning, you know, when things started coming apart and how close the grid came, what what to, to collapsing, what what was going on during, you know, Sunday night into early Monday morning when a lot of us found our power was going off? Well, it, essentially what happened, I think, is that this storm came in so fast and so hard. You know, thing, things happened really fast between um, essentially Sunday evening um, into very early Monday morning. And, and what happened, it hit so hard and fast that it knocked out, um, you know, some of these resources. So not only, you know, we're not only are we talking about power plants that weren't available, and, you know, ERCOT has said, you know, that, you know, about 50% of their resources were not available. And, 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 if you, and if you think about what we talked about earlier, you know, all, ERCOT doesn't own anything. All they're doing is managing what's on the market within the parameters of the, of the, of the market construct mm -hmm. and um, keeping things reliable. And so, so they, you know, they don't, they don't have any things they can do to direct generation or find new generation. It's just whatever is available and whatever is operating is what they have to work with. And so, so they found themselves in a situation where their resource 
availability was declining very quickly. Um, and not only the power plants uh, going offline, but uh, the availability of gas to be delivered to those power plants so they could run was also going away. Yeah. You know, in, in, in two ways. One is, you know, whenever we have a, a, a winter situation like this, you know, gas has to be prioritized uh, essentially for human consumption. You know, there's a lot of the state that still uses natural gas for heating. And so that becomes a priority for gas. And, you know, I can remember back when things were regulated and I was doing um, managing the fuel um, at El Cire. Every winter, there was this committee that was called the, I think it was called the, the Natural Gas Reliability Committee. And it was essentially mandated by the Railroad Commission. And, and I was part of that committee for several years as an LCRA representative. But when a winter storm would come in, the person who ran that committee would get everybody on the phone and say, all right, what do you guys, how's your situation with gas? Because um, I don't know if you remember this, Larry, but back in the early 70s, there was a period when gas was completely curtailed and there was no gas available for power plants and all the power plants were scrambling. They were mainly natural gas back then. were scrambling to find uh, fuel oil to burn in those power plants. And um, that was a big deal like in 1973. And so, um, so we would get together and we would, you know, I would get information from our uh, control center about, you know, how things were going with, you know, the power plants. Um, the fuel group would have information about, you know, do we have enough fuel oil in our storage tanks? Why are our natural gas contracts going? And we would kind of manage shortages that way through that uh, little group. Mm -hmm. um, well, with the advent of competition, you know, they're, you know, power plants have kind of dropped down on that group. Um, there is a little bit of coordination that's going on, but one of the things that had to happen this winter was to get the rail commission to, to bump up the power plants in priority in order to have enough gas to keep everything running. So that was one of the things that happened a couple of weekends ago. Um, so ERCOT found itself, you know, going into, you know, close to midnight Sunday evening, uh, finding out that, you know, the power plants were dropping off, um, gas was being curtailed in terms of, you know, pipelines, you know, not only power plants can freeze up, but pipelines can freeze up. And um, so you had compressor stations that had problems. Um, you know, a lot of the compressor stations now are electric. And so, um, you know, if they didn't have power, they couldn't compress natural gas. You know, that all kind of created more of a problem. And ERCOT got to a point very quickly. Uh, it's surprising how quickly that, that you know, by 1.30 in the morning, they were having to begin rolling outages. And essentially over the course of just a few hours, they lost enough resources and reserves that the only thing they can do in order to keep the frequency up and not deteriorate the frequency was to start rolling outages. And I think they started it at about a thousand megawatts worth of rolling outages. And so, um, and so then, you know, within about, I think Larry and I, you, you and I looked at this, but within about yeah. 30 to 45 minutes, they got to a point where they were within minutes of blacking out the whole state um, yeah. because they've got certain requirements they have around frequency. As I said earlier, frequency can only dip so much for so long before there's potential harm, physical harm to power plants, to substations, um, that if they get to that point, then they essentially have, the power plants can just begin to, to get off and to protect the equipment. And at that point, we would have a complete blackout. And ERCOT reported yesterday during their board meeting that they were within essentially five minutes of that happening. Yeah. And so that was like at about 2.30 in the morning, Monday morning. So it was a very, very bad situation. And they had to dump, you know, they had to take a lot of load off the system with these 
rotating outages, you know, part, part of the issue is because they had to take so much off the system that um, it, the, the utilities that had to do the rotating outages couldn't really rotate the outages because all that was left essentially on the system were the critical loads. So the distribution utilities, which are the ones that do the rolling outages, they have to protect, you know, hospitals, fire stations, EMS stations, you know, city halls, things like that, that are required yeah. to keep, you know, everything functioning and, you know, protect uh, lives. You know, those, those had to stay on, you know, and I remember at some point in that week, I don't remember what, when it was, but ERCOT did send out a notice that they may have to begin to take off critical load because they were worried about where they were. And so, so, so what they were trying to do was maintain that frequency so they would not get so low that the whole system would go black. And, and on that point, Larry, you know, I remembered when, when I was listening to, to the ERCOT CEO talking about this, you know, there was an event when I was at El Cire where there was a, a piece of equipment failed in uh, one of the substations at the Fayette Power Project. Uh, it was essentially the, the substation that a, that a generator at the power plant would feed into that substation at like 24,000 volts. And then in that substation, it would be um, transformed into the voltage that would go out on the on the uh, high voltage just high voltage transmission lines. So I mean we're talking we're not talking about 110 volts here. We're talking about you know 24,000 volts, 345,000 volts. Yeah. Um, but there was a piece of equipment that failed within that substation, um, and and it was found out later on it was it was because of human error at the at the uh, system operation control center. And it wasn't caught quick enough, and this this um, failure created a, a situation where power began to backfeed into the generator, and um, it was just long enough. It was a very short event. I mean, they caught it quickly, but it essentially damaged um, the power generator, the rotor within the power generator that that unit had to be shut down. The rotor had to be taken out. It had to be rewound. And so, so, you know, this is serious stuff at high voltages that could happen if we had this frequency event. And, and to prevent physical damage, they would have to shut the whole state down. So we were within five minutes of that happening. And so, so in that sense, ERCOT did their job. You know, they managed the reliability of the system so we didn't have a complete shutdown in the state. Now, now what, what got us there was because all these power plants uh, went offline, the majority of them were um, what we call thermal plants. So they're plants that use thermal energy, a boiler essentially, to turn a steam turbine. So they'd be gas plants, coal plants, and nuclear plants. And so they, the ones that were unavailable, they were about six, a little over 60% of what was lost, what was not available at ERCOT. Wow. The rest of it was, um, you know, renewables. It was solar and wind, you know, wind, these wind turbines were subject to, you know, some of the same uh, freezing conditions and icing. And so, you know, there were a lot of those wind plants that were not available either um, because they weren't winterized for that kind of weather. But there was, you know, um, some a good deal bit of wind that was generating over that time and but but you know if if there would have been more gas plants online and if there would not have been a failure in gas fuel delivery as much as there was you know this this event would not have looked as bad as it did so frank we're getting getting close to the end of our time together and uh i think we we, we've heard a lot about how the market functions. We've heard about the, the depth of the problem. Uh, ERCOT managed to keep the system operating, but just barely. Uh, what, what, what should we think about going forward? What should, 
What should the ordinary person uh, know about, ask their legislators to do? What, how should we view this with what we know at, at this time? Well, I think I think one important thing to keep in mind is that you know this you know this may have been uh, uh, what a so-called black swan event. You know, how often is something like this really going to happen? You know, is it is it something you know that could be so-called climate change that is changing you know patterns enough that we're going to experience this more in the future? Um, was it something that's only going to happen you know once every hundred years. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one thing that, that we need to think about when we're weighing the risk of something like this happening again. And, and, you know, whenever we're talking about a competitive market, risk is always a big part of a competitive market. You're always weighing risk against reward. And, and there's no doubt that the, that the ERCOT system and the competitive market has worked very well, you know, since um, you know 1999, and it's created a lot of benefits, and so um, you know, um, and as you said, you know, it's it's always geared towards the summer. You know, we always anticipate summer is going to be the most difficult time to serve the load. You know, if we continue to have these kind of hard winters, we might need to rethink that. So, so I think that's one thing you know that in the in the big picture that needs to be thought about. And, and then you need to think about, well, you know, how do you prevent that risk? Is the risk worth um, investing something to, to avoid it? What's the cost of that? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I think we need to have all the data on the table, all the facts on the table to kind of begin to really weigh that question. You know, I think, I think the policy uh, makers are going to have to think about well, are they still happy with the, with the way they designed the ERCOT market back in 99? Um, or do they want to change some aspects of it and make it a little bit different, um, knowing that it could potentially change, you know, what uh, electricity costs if they make some changes in it? Sure. And so, um, you know, I, don't, I, I think at this point, Larry, there's really not a clear-cut clear black and white answer that says, all right, this is what we need to do, and it's going to fix it. Yes. Um, you know, um, the ERCOT CEO, I heard him testify that when he was asked a question about changing the market, you know, he made a very good point about, you know, one of the, one of the other market structures in the U.S. is called a capacity market, so that you pay power plants a capacity payment just for being available if you need them. You know, in ERCOT, they only get paid an energy payment. So it's only when they run and produce energy do they get paid. Yeah. And so, so he made a good point. He said, well, you know, you, you could have a capacity market and you could pay for capacity. But, you know, we don't know during this winter event whether even those power plants would have not frozen up or been available or had the gas they needed. And so, so, so I think it's a much bigger question than just that. And and uh, and I think, you know, we need to look at look at the data, look at the facts, look at the scope of the questions then that are out there, and then try and come up with well, what's the best path forward, given the risk, given the reward. Um, you know, you know, it's hard to, you know, I think it's very difficult to make those kind of decisions when you're, you know, not only talking about monetary issues. But you're talking about, you know, life-threatening issues. You know, I heard on the radio that there could be, you know, as much as, a, you know, a dozen, several dozen deaths yes. that eventually are discovered, you know, out of what happened. And so, you know, how do you put a price on that right. when, when you're, you know, sure. you're threatening human life exactly. with kind of decisions you make around what happens during a winter event like this. So, so I don't think it's going to be an easy, clear-cut, black-and-white kind of thing. And, and it's probably going to take a little while to kind of come up with the questions, the, the appropriate questions, and then uh, come up with, you know, well, what are the best answers to go forward? Well, Frank, I think, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, get together again and talk about this more as those uh, answers uh, and even the right questions become more evident. 
So thank you very much yes. for your time today. Uh, it's been informative. It's been helpful. Uh, your years of experience in the electric market uh, help us to, to get a grasp of the complexity and how the, how the extreme weather uh, impacted us and what we might do for the future. So to our audience, thank you for being with us today. I hope you'll visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org. You can also listen to our podcast on Hill Country Institute Live. Uh, We have audio and video from our past conferences on many faith and culture topics at the website. And we ask for your financial support to continue this program. Uh, You can donate at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993. So thank you again for being with us for Hill Country Institute Live. And we encourage you to share the heart, love, and mind of Jesus Christ wherever God calls you. 